So we flew in and we hired a car, and uh, and then within I don't know the airport's about 20 minutes away from the actual city. So I'd say within 40 minutes, you're you're seeing the complete destruction of of landing. Um, it it was a real shock. It was a genuine shock. Our hotel was pretty much in this. It was like on the walk, what's called Fisherman's Wharf, I think, which is really central in San Francisco. And to get there, you have to go past the downtown area, which is where all the government buildings are. And that is just a total dystopian nightmare. Everything that I've seen on Twitter, everything I've seen on Fox News, everything that I'd seen from these um, YouTube clips was being borne out in front of me and you cannot escape it. It feels like you cannot walk around that city for even five minutes without seeing some kind of homelessness, some kind of drug addict. It's not just visual, there are other senses. You hear people screaming, you hear the sirens, you're smelling the smell of human feces. It's disgusting. The whole city is a nightmare. Welcome to the Indie Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Ricky Orpike and joining me once again is Jonathan Astro. John, have you ever been to San Francisco? No, uh, but isn't the song uh, I Left My Heart in San Francisco? I believe so, yeah. Well, I haven't done that, so. We we have seen a bunch of Dirty Harry movies, though, haven't we? Yeah, so I feel like I have been there. Um, it's kind, kind of like Dirty Harry times there right now, just minus the, the Harry. It is. It is. It certainly doesn't look um doesn't look fun. Uh, so we will be covering it with with tonight's wonderful guest Stephen Edgington, who writes for the Telegraph in the UK. What a great publication they are! I'm always happy when I open the Telegraph UK app. Mm. It's beautiful. It's you know it's it's just I love the whole experience. You know the opposite. You of like I, it more than the Guardian? Well, the Guardian's um good if um <laughs> I'm in the need of a self flagellation. <laughs> uh, not always. Yes. All right. Well, uh, let's do this. Well, we always tell you the truth here at the New Flesh Podcast, and the truth is that we need your help. We need you to leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to the show. We're also on YouTube, so please subscribe to our YouTube channel and leave a comment about the show you liked, or perhaps one that you didn't. Word of mouth is also a very powerful tool, so please tell all of your friends. And finally, to our Uber fans, if you love what we do, you can send us a little cash via the Buy Me A Coffee platform. Any donation here is very much appreciated, and I do love a nice cup of joe. Now, on with the show. Stephen Edgington is a journalist, interviewer, documentary maker and video comment editor at the Daily Telegraph in the UK. He's interviewed some of heavy hitters, including uh, Jordan Peterson, Stephen Pinker, Lionel Shriver and many others. Uh, as I've told him, uh, I steal from him regularly and I give him no credit. Uh, I'm unrepentant like a thief in the night. Stephen, welcome to The New Flesh. Thank you very much for having me. Now, how did you find yourself at the Telegraph, sitting down with these these big big guests like Jordan Peterson, Victor Davis Hanson, Nigel Farage, Michael Schellenberger, Stephen Pinker? What what's your story? That's a big question. Um, I suppose it all started when I was a teenager, and I was a very odd, nerdy type who was very interested in history and that obsession sort of developed into um, a passion for politics. And when I was at school, I was really interested in, for example, the Brexit campaign that was sort of really going off in the UK when I was growing up. And this passion for, I suppose, politics, history, these kind of topics, um, the way that I dealt with that was by starting my own YouTube channel. And on this YouTube channel, I actually did some of these long form interviews. So I've been doing these interviews with some of these people 
um, for a long time. It feels like a long time. So maybe 10 years about or something like that, just under wow. 10 years. And um, when I was a kid, I was literally just, you know, I didn't know anyone in politics. I didn't know anyone in journalism. I'm not, you know, my family isn't from that background or anything like that. And I just cold, cold called, emailed all of these journalists and in some cases, politicians, um, you know, including people like Alastair Campbell, who's a famous kind of spin doctor for Tony Blair, uh, journalists like Isabel Oakeshott, who was very helpful. She's a big journalist in the UK. And um, and the foreign, the now Foreign Secretary, James Cleverly, he was another one who I interviewed just, you know, when I was a teenager. And some of these interviews did really well on YouTube. And um, my career in journalism and in politics really started out from that YouTube channel. And I suppose that if you, you could sort of draw a link directly from that YouTube channel, which doesn't really exist anymore, um, to my job at The Telegraph. But there's been a lot of stuff that's happened in between, obviously. I knew you'd done some scrubbing. We can't, there's nothing of you online. You've, you, you have wiped yourself before this, and I, I appreciate that. Well, the thing is, right, when you're growing up in, in an age of the internet and, um, you know, and you're a kid, every, everyone is fallible. And especially when you're a child, you, you may say things, and I'm not saying necessarily I did, but you may say things that you regret or that, or that one point in your life, in like 20, 30 years' time, you're gonna, someone's going to drag out and try and cancel you. So um, I think everyone should be, or should limit their exposure as much as possible. I mean, when you're like 12 and 13 and being introduced to Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and all of these mediums, you have no idea what you know the ramifications that could happen later on in life. And I think it's a really terrifying. Um, like sort of moment for children who are growing up now. And I was just like on the cusp of this stuff. So, you know, when I was really young, it didn't exist. And I was really, when I was growing up, it was these new social media companies were becoming very, very popular. And I think, um, you know, everyone has to be super careful. And I, d I just think kids these days, they've got such a difficult tightrope to go down. And I really, sometimes I think if I ever have children, well, you know, I, I, really, I really wouldn't want them to have like Instagram or YouTube or any of this stuff because it's just so dangerous. Not only what they could be posting themselves, which could be, you know, which could impact them later in life, but also what they're being exposed to on these platforms. Now, I hope they're watching my interviews and things like that and your podcast. But um, <laughs> unfortunately, I think there's lots of other sort of more dangerous things that, that I'm, you know, that they'll, that they'll be exposed to. Do, do, do you think do you think it should be a little bit like like your tax records you know like your receipts and stuff like every seven years you throw those out like it should be the same with with your internet history like whatever you've got out there it's been seven years all right dump that start again I just think it's up to the individual to be careful and um, you know there, there has to be some at the same time you know there has to be accountability let's say that later on in life I or whoever became a public figure then it would be interesting to see I suppose what I said on the internet all those years ago and sometimes that could be relevant and you know there's lots of important reasons I suppose for accountability and public interest and things like that and transparency that people's internet history should exist but at the same time it's up to you if you think you've said something controversial or something that you're you know or you regret or something you genuinely don't believe anymore then it should be up to you to be able to delete that and to move on but the internet will always keep a record of it, I suppose, at one but, point. But one of the problems is, is that what you say now in 10 years, like now might not be controversial, but then 10 years later, you know, it, it could be. I mean, we're kind of seeing that with with the kind of outrage archaeology that goes on where, where you know, I mean, 
people people drag up stuff 15 years ago and then that ends up getting you cancelled you know and back then it wasn't a big deal yeah i think um that is going to happen i mean in the future the sort of overton window will definitely continue to shift and as we've seen that overton window has very much shifted to the left in the last sort of 10 20 years so yeah people are being cancelled for what was normally or nominally a very ordinary opinion about let's say gender or biology and suddenly that's become extremely controversial and it's funny you see particularly these people who are sort of what has happened is many of these people on the left who used to be very controversial some of them have now become massive gatekeepers so a great example of that in the uk is a guy called frankie boyle who is this is this comedian who some people find funny personally not my taste but he you know he makes he makes very he made very very controversial jokes that really the whole point of frankie boyle a frankie boyle joke was that he would be outrageous and he'd say things that were just just completely beyond the pale and now he has completely flipped and he said he i think he runs a program on the bbc where he basically says you mustn't be offensive you mustn't say xyz or you know basically to try and cancel people so it's just like frankie Paul, do you know who you're talking i mean you're literally the person who said the most terrible horrible things about you know making jokes about 9 11 making jokes about you know the royal family in a real vulgar kind of disgusting way and suddenly he's reverse ferreted and said that anyone who makes offensive comments around trans people or whatever should should be cancelled or you know we've got to be specific here he's he's on this bbc program and that's and he does this kind of you know the, the, basically he's just completely reverse ferreted and i just i think it's pretty disgusting that you've got some of these people the gate the gatekeepers and also like even today you know in the last week i'll give you an example of why you know i've got to keep be careful of my what i put on the internet in the last week i've been working on stories for the telegraph where i've had people trying to like get me sacked basically and um, I've just had hundreds of people, you know, there's this one guy who's implying on, online that I'm a racist. And it's just like, I, I don't know if you want to hear the whole story. It's kind of complicated, but um, it, it's really, it's a difficult situation with the internet. And, you know, when you're dealing with controversial stories like I am, and when you work for a newspaper and you hold, and you hold people to account, you are going to anger people and, um, and they'll get riled up. And, and literally I've had people tweeting me like, CCing in all my bosses saying you should fire this guy um da, 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 da. and you know that's just one example of like of why you have to be super careful online because anyone could try and should, could try and get you fired fortunately i work for an institution that um i think is pretty brave on these issues but if i didn't then i think that, that could be an issue Stephen, you you just got to get better at, at something that we've been talking about for a while now and that's woke jitsu so so woke jitsu you just got to get a good move, like like the, the and, and go all in. See, Frankie Ball, he's brilliant. So what he's done is he's only got a couple of options in front of him. He's like, okay, I either get, um, you know, they're going to cancel me entirely and and get rid of all my specials, or I go, I flip and and go. Well, actually, I'm going to be the the arbiter and go all the other way, even though privately he doesn't believe any of it. So maybe you just need to, I don't know. You could do a range of things. You could just fully wear a sombrero. Or something, and then just say there are other and speak say stuff like there are other ways of knowing, and then people and then people would go, oh no, I actually I think Stephen's got I think he's mixed race I think I don't think we're allowed I think we're the offensive ones, and then you win. Do you know there's some there's something so tempting in wanting to <laughs> portray myself as uh, you know. I can't really do the ethnic minority card. Maybe I could try the gay card. I mean, maybe I could say I'm bisexual. Maybe I could try. I don't know. Um, uh, I'm blue, not, by the way, blue but hair. 
one binary is a good one because that's one you can't that's kind of disprovable um that's impossible to that's impossible to to, to deny to deny my pro- and also by the way i thought it was very interesting that when i logged in i'm logged into this interview it asked me for my pronouns <laughs> uh, yes. fascinating um but uh but no there, there is definitely uh, there's something in me genuinely that makes that wants to try and portray myself there's kind of this this um i suppose darker side of everyone's character where you want to betray yourself as a victim right i mean there's a bit of sort of I suppose there's a bit of self-pity. I mean, for example, as I said, like the last week, I've just I've dealt with, I've been de- dealing with loads of different stories at the Telegraph. I've been de- I'm editing these big documentary projects, which maybe we'll talk about later. Um, and you know, I had a guy on the phone earlier in this week calling me up, just screaming at me, shouting at me, swearing at me. A guy who, uh, a guy in a very senior position, and put it like that. I've had other press officers being extremely rude, and then I've had this whole campaign to try and get me fired. And I'm not saying any of this because I'm uh, because I want anyone to have sympathy with me. I, you know, it's my job. I've decided to make all these decisions. I can take complete responsibility. I knew exactly what I was doing when I got, was getting into all of this stuff. But there is something. There's like a tiny part of me that wants to put out on Twitter and say, "Stop attacking me!" You know, I'm the victim. Blah 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 blah. Which is basically what the left wants to do all the time. But I'm not going to do that because I don't feel like I'm a victim. I'm a grown adult. I'm. I made the, as I said, I made these decisions. I, 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 I sort of, um, I'm quite happy to take responsibility for my actions and for my journalism and for the people that I write stories about, which I know sometimes they will find that unpleasant and they'll be angry and they'll try and get their online mobs to attack me, which is what uh, it last week someone did, unfortunately. Um, but I've got to, I've got to live with that, and and that's sort of all part of the course. But then some people they want to because they suddenly get some criticisms online, they want to I don't know censor people, or they want to shut these people down, or they want to be seen as a victim, or or they want some sort of special privilege or whatever, or they want a lot of sympathy, or they try and tar their political opponents as. Um, as kind of evil people who are racist and abusers. And that's what I don't want to do here, where people have political disagreements with me and they're being very forthwith in their criticism. Um, I'm not interested in painting them as some kind of abusive mob that, that, that should be shut down or whatever, or that I'm some sort of innocent, weak victim, which unfortunately is what many, many journalists do today. You know, you, like there's this BBC journalist called Mariana Spring. I don't know if you've come across her work, who's um, the BBC disinformation correspondent, which, by the way, is the most sinister sounding job title in the world. And she did an interview with the Times recently where it was like she was claiming that 80% of all abuse against BBC journalists were against this one journalist, Mariana Spring. And um, when you look into the details of those like claims, some of the tweets that they were that she was claiming or they were claiming were abusive were just like ordinary criticisms of her work, like completely legitimate. And there is something in you when someone starts attacking your work, you get you might get a bit defensive. But actually, she works for a public publicly funded institution. She should she should expect criticism of her work. She should welcome criticism of her work. As I welcome it, of course, um, and there is, you know, there's a lot of scrutiny on you as a journalist. I'm publishing things in a national newspaper. We're regulated by um, an authority called IPSO. Every single thing that I publish, including the videos, by the way, goes through a lawyer. Everything that I do, I will look. I will fact check. I'll be so careful. It's been drilled into me over years and years and years of working in newspapers. Um, every every word that I put out has to be precise. Every single sentence that I write has to be true. And I and there's so much it, within me. There's so much um, of 
there's so much feeling of a moral responsibility that my work is accurate and legitimate because I know that the reach that it has is, you know, is significant. So I feel a, that there's some there's something that keeps me up at night. Every, you know, if I publish a story that I'm uncertain about, um, I really, I can't, I literally can't sleep. I, I, I'm so concerned about making sure that everything I do is is completely accurate because I do get threatened all the time by lawyers. I mean, literally in the last few weeks, I've had like four letters from different law firms like threatening to sue me for various stories and to sue my newspaper before that by the way that's we're talking about before we go to publication and because i'm so fortunate that the lawyers here at the telegraph are extremely courageous and willing to hold people to account where appropriate um i'm able i was able to go ahead with all, with all of those stories without any revisions because i was so sure that they were accurate and when we did publish them these threats of libel for now have completely gone away because they had no legs to stand on staggering well well none of that comes across none of the 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 angst comes across in 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 your work that i read uh at all so it just you know it's just a professional great product so so we don't get any of that. Uh, so that's fascinating to hear that. But I think we should get into, uh, we'll come back to the interviews later. I want to get into this documentary because it's interesting that you talk about you've been fact-checked because I tell you what, I feel like some people in one of your recent documentaries should have been fact-checked uh, quite a lot. Um, a, a fascinating documentary you released through The Telegraph uh, that focused around San Francisco. So... Uh, can you talk to us about this project? Why did you pick San Francisco? What were you hoping to achieve? How, how did this one come about? Well, the issue that we were, f that I am fascinated in, and what the documentary is about, uh, is reparations. And the issue of reparations, it goes back a long, it has a long history, right? So lots of different groups have received reparations throughout the past. One of the most famous um, examples of this was the Treaty of Versailles, where uh, Britain and France. Um, both received reparations uh, from Germany after the First World War. And this had a serious consequence. Anyone who's studied the Treaty of Versailles will know that uh, there were some rather negative consequences to this reparation, this overly harsh, zealous reparations. And there's a huge argument as to whether, I'm going into the weeds a bit here, as to whether the, the, the treaty should have been even more harsh to completely cripple Germany or whether it should have been less harsh and, you know, which would have stopped Hitler, I don't know. So this issue of reparations I found interesting. And, and more recently, you've got people in San Francisco arguing that they're, and in California, arguing that there should be reparations for black people for slavery. And to me, this seemed fascin fascinating and rather bizarre because California and San Francisco have never had slavery. It wasn't, they were never a slave state. So this idea that people in black people in San Francisco and California should be eligible to potentially huge payments um, for something that never even existed in in San Francisco or California, um, it, it was really weird. And I really wanted to find out why, what the arguments were in favour of reparations. And as a Brit, I think the the debates around um, race are quite different to what they are in America. And I imagine in Australia, it's probably quite similar, where we never really had that history of slavery within Britain. Obviously, the, the British Empire, there was, a, there was a history of the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade, which we, we, we had a big role in. Um, but of course, on the other side of the balance sheet, the British Empire shut down slavery and spent um, a lot of lives, blood, and money and gold on um, 
on ending the slave trade around the world. So all of these things to me were interesting. And then just on top of that, you've got this city, San Francisco, which has gone through an incredible transformation in the last 20, 30 years from this once iconic city next to Silicon Valley, full of wealth and beauty and the Golden Gate Bridge and opportunity and entrepreneurism and just all of these things. And you, you know, and now all you hear about in San Francisco is the drugs, is the crime, is the homelessness. And this city has allegedly turned into this dystopian nightmare. And you see on Twitter all of these videos of like journalists going through San Francisco, and they might just be a cut here or um, a clip there from one street. And you think it can't be all like that, surely. Surely they've selectively edited. Surely they've taken what you know one street and, and tried to pretend that this is the whole city. So I wanted to find out for myself the truth about all of this stuff, about the reparations and about San Francisco itself. So I went out there in the middle of June for eight days. And 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 how how long after you arrived did you notice all the homelessness and the encampments and stuff? Like did you have to get that far into the city before you you saw that, you know, the open drug scene? Yeah, I think we so we flew in and we hired a car. I don't know how long that took, maybe half an hour. And uh, and then within, I don't know, the airport's about 20 minutes away from the actual city. So I'd say within 40 minutes, you're, you're seeing the complete destruction of, of landing. Um, it, it was a real shock. It was a genuine shock. You, you know, you, our hotel was pretty, um, pretty much in this. It was like on the what's called Fisherman's Wharf, I think, which is really central in San Francisco. And to get there, you have to go past the downtown area, which is where all the government buildings are. And that is just a total dystopian nightmare. Everything that I've seen on Twitter, everything I'd seen on Fox News, everything that I'd seen from these um, YouTube clips was being borne out in front of me. And you cannot escape it. You cannot go anywhere. It feels like you cannot walk around that city for even five minutes without seeing some kind of homelessness, some kind of drug addict. Um, It's not just visual it's also there are other senses you hear people screaming you hear the sirens you're smelling the smell of human feces it's disgusting the whole city is almost the whole city obviously there are bit like roads where you can go down where you don't see anything like in the more residential areas but um almost the whole place is a nightmare where are these the i'm fascinated by how, is it possible? What would you need to be cloistered away from all of this? Like, is there a liberal elite that that, uh, or just an elite on both sides, uh, Republican Democrat, who who could live there and never experience any of this, or is everyone experiencing it? Do you think? I don't think you can escape from it. I really don't. There may be some. Like, we went and filmed some drone shots. We wanted to get some. So I was with there with a the camera guy, obviously, and we wanted to get some drone shots of the city to sort of establish the location. And we drove to this uh, residential area on the top of this hill kind of overlooking San Francisco. And maybe if I was thinking, maybe if you lived there, which is kind of slightly out of the way, um, if you just stayed in that part of the city, you could probably sort of insulate yourself. But if you lived there and you wanted to go to a restaurant or a bar, which are all kind of more in the downtown area, downtown area, um, or if you worked in an office that was in the center of the city. Now, I, I know that a lot of people work from home uh, in San Francisco and probably, you know, 
in the UK as well. So um, that's a big phenomenon. So maybe if you don't go to an office, you could avoid it as well. But yeah, if you're doing anything kind of residential, any kind of activity that you want to do, whether it's a tourist activity, whether it's going for dinner, whether it's um, going to a nightclub, whether it's going into the offices, you are going to see this stuff. You cannot, you literally cannot escape it. Well, the video that uh, that you took uh, has an, a, a, quite a shocking event in it. Uh, you and your team were attacked, so you need to tell us about this. Yeah. So part of the do- so most of the documentary was about reparations, and we went to various events, um, a reparations events. Like we went to this Juneteenth rally, and um, we went to Oakland and we did lots of interviews. But part of the film we wanted to we wanted to include in the film this this really important segment about San Francisco itself. Because the context of this reparations argument, you know, the fact that they've basically just to uh, let me just give a bit of context to this whole thing. So in San Francisco, they have this reparations body that what that has proposed to give five million dollars to every single black person in the city, which would cost one hundred and seventy five billion dollars. The city's budget is thirteen billion dollars every year. So you can do the maths. Um, so within the context of them proposing to spend tens, hundreds of billions of dollars on this reparations issue, You've got a city that is crumbling. You've got a city that is going through a complete disaster, particularly in terms of drugs, because fentanyl has become a major, major problem um, in San Francisco. So you've got massive uh, increase in overdose deaths in the last year, uh, huge increases in in petty crime, um, and obviously homelessness itself. So, so we wanted to get the context of what San Francisco is going through as a city when you compare it to these proposals, which are already pretty mad, of giving $5 million to every black person. So we made this decision to go around the city with our car, with our hired car, and we were going to film some of these homeless, some of these homeless people on the streets, some of these homeless tents, homeless encampments. And we did not feel comfortable or safe filming these homeless people outside of the car. We were concerned that if we walked down walk past any of these streets of which, as I say, uh, m- huge parts of the city are just covered in homeless tents and pe- and just drug addicts, drug dealers, um, who are genuinely could be more dangerous because they don't want to be filmed. Um, in America, obviously, everyone or a lot of people have guns, so that's obviously a concern. So we were, we were concerned that if we were walking down the street with our extremely expensive camera equipment, we would be mugged or attacked or they wouldn't like to be filmed or whatever. So to, to be safe, we stayed in the car. And what we did for the first two hours of filming, which took like, literally you can go, you know, you can go anywhere and find the stuff, is we would park up opposite a street, a street encampment and my cameraman with a long lens would film them for a few minutes. No one would spot us and we'd move on, which is what we did very successfully. The problems we had, so we thought basically we were doing it covertly. No one was seeing what we were doing. The problem we had was when we made the decision for my cameraman, he was driving, and for me to take the gimbal, which is like, for those people who don't know, it's kind of um, camera equipment where you, you hold it in two hands and it's basically meant to sort of stabilize the camera. It's quite a heavy, very expensive piece of kit. And our plan was to drive around these areas with my window down and f- record them as we were going past them. So the idea behind this was we would be safe because by the time they'd even seen the camera, if they saw the camera, we'd be already be you know far down the street and it wouldn't matter. Within a few minutes of doing this, the, our, what, what our kind of theory of safety was, I suppose, shattered when we hit a red light. So someone saw the camera, shouted UMFA 
at us. Um, my camera, and by the way, you know, in the city, there's lots of other noises going on. It's it's quite chaotic. We're already a bit kind of on edge, and we, you know, my cameraman wasn't even aware that this guy had seen us. I was aware. He we we were talking about it later on, obviously after what happened, and um, so it was all a bit chaotic. So he shouted down to his. He shouted MF at us, and um, we were looking back on the footage, and we, this is basically the sequence of events. He then shouted down to homeless people who were along the street, a bit further down where, to where we were, where we'd hit the red light about 10 or 20 meters away, and he was whistling to them to make them aware that they were being filmed, or at least that we were a target. So suddenly, people started throwing stuff at the vehicle. So you had all these people in hoods, um, homeless people, I don't know who they were, um, potentially drug dealers, it's impossible to know, wearing hoods, wearing face masks. In San Francisco, as you, I'm sure you're aware, it's you know one of the mis- most liberal cities in the world, so of course everyone's like triple masked anyway, but it's a good excuse like in terms of COVID masks, but it's a good excuse as well, also to hide your identity if you're wearing the mask. So these people start throwing stuff at our vehicle, and I'm still recording with the gimbal, and my window's down. And um, the car is just getting splattered with stuff. I don't know what it is. I don't even want to think about what it is. I think it was food, but let's just no, let's no, hope it was, it was food. food. It was good. Let's put it that way. Yeah, well, if it was food, I'd be happy. And um, some of it got on my arm. There was like all this black liquid on my arm. And I was like, oh, God, what is that? And uh, I couldn't roll the window up because um, I had this really heavy gimbal, <laughs> you know, in two hands. So I literally was just getting, compl- and I was like, Alex, the camera guy, I was like, Alex, roll the window up, roll the window up. And he wasn't because he was uh, he was focusing on the driving and trying to get away. Anyways, so eventually I managed to hold the camera with one hand, put the window up, and um, the red light turned green, and thankfully, we were away. Okay, 20 meters, maybe 10, 15 meters down the road, we hit another obstacle. There was someone in front of us who'd driven, who was like blocking the road vertically. It was some woman, some idiotic woman, who was driving and doing like a three-point turn across <laughs> the road. So it was a bit like, it was, do you know what it was like? It was like in a movie scene where, you know, like you've got spies, and that one person's in a car, and the, you've got like the two operatives who are sort of like closing in on them and blocking them off. That's what it felt like. Or maybe like in a police chase when they kind yes. of use two cars to try and block you. Yes. We had nowhere to go. We had like one car in front of us. There was a car behind us. We literally couldn't reverse. We couldn't go forward. There was nothing we could do. So we were just completely exposed. And then we heard this huge explosion behind us, this bang. And suddenly I felt glass smash into the back of my head, onto my lap, and my immediate instinct was that we'd been shot at. You hear a, you hear a loud explosion. You, you you feel glass on you, and you think, "I've just been we've just been shot at." So obviously, my heart is kind of pumping, and, I, and we we turn around, and the whole back windshield of our car has been completely destroyed. And fortunately, or maybe unfortunately, literally just as this is happening, the person in front of us um, had gone. So my cameraman put his foot on the accelerator and we sped off and uh, we were all a bit kind of in shock and we looked back on the footage and what it turned out what it was was these two um, hooded people had thrown this, they must have thrown it with an extraordinary strength, had thrown this sort of whiskey bottle into the back of our windshield and it completely smashed it. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to smash a car window because you've lost your keys or something in there, but it's very, very difficult to do. Um, well, if you go, they, and, they, just had, they sort of had meth strength, you know. Like well, this is what I, 
you know, there's like, there's like superhuman strength, isn't there, from uh, from having some sometimes when you're like drugged up. Yeah, um, drugged. But yeah, we just went to the funny thing was, and I'll just just to finish the story, we went to the car rental because we were terrified it was going to cost us loads of money to get the car fixed. And um, they literally told us, don't worry about it, we get 10 of these a day. Uh, and they gave us a free upgrade to a, a nicer car. So wow. that was sort of our experience of San Francisco. Well, Stephen, th- this whole situation reminds me of that scene in the Inbetweeners when Jay yells out the car at some people at the bus stop, bus wankers, and then they get they get trapped at the traffic lights. And then <laughs> the bus wankers just, just accost them and it's all downhill from there. We were the bus wankers in that scenario, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> uh, goodness. Uh, good show. Well, I think we should get into uh, the substance. I mean, it's a dreadful story, Steve. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what to do with that. Like, it's, it's. Um, I think it's just. I think people should just need to watch the documentary, see it, and then that tells the story. You could. You can't even. You know, just film without being uh, attacked. But uh, the, the reparations, uh, I think, is 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 where the story is, uh, as you say. So you say in one of your articles uh, that, that, that uh, followed this up that part of the reason you went to San Francisco was to investigate the reparations initiative that's been undertaken by the city. Here's a quote from one of your articles, quote, uh, San Francisco's 15-person reparations committee handed over their final proposals, which include a policy to give every black resident $5 million to, to, to city legislators at the end uh, of last month. So you, you mentioned you went to a Juneteenth rally. Uh, tell us about some of the people you spoke to there. Yeah, so we went to this, uh, for people who don't know what Juneteenth is, by the way, and, and uh, you know, if you don't, good on you. Um, it's this like weird holiday that they celebrate, uh, to celebrate the end of slavery, basically, in America. But the, Juneteenth was never a holiday. It was never a historic thing. They, they sort of, it was something that happened in 1865 in Texas. And I think they celebrated it the following year in 1866. Um, people can fact check me if they want on this. And um, and then it was renewed again in like the 80s. So it's one of these weird things that this, the left is sort of pretend, they pretend that it's been celebrated all, you know, for the last 150 years when it hasn't. But basically it's this very, it's this, it's this, it's this day where and we went to this this rally in San Francisco where they were celebrating Juneteenth. This sort of it was like a fair. I would describe it to British viewers or listeners as a, a, a sort of village fete, but with black nationalist politics. And you had the, <laughs> it was like you know you had people you had music blaring, you had um, people with lots of different types of kind of barbecue f- food and um, all sorts of you know things for children to do like makeup and um, you know bubbles and you could ride a horse and whatever but the context or the subcontext of it was you had all of these groups who had their own stands um who were like selling either talking about race or talking about black lives matter or were it was like a lot of it was weird it was like the the city government had set up all of a lot of these like um stands they'd actually funded a lot of these people to give for example they were giving out free massages to black people to because apparently black people are so stressed out because of all the systemic racism they needed the, the free massages they also had these like book stands that were handing out these books for like children that were called woke baby like unironically woke baby and you had all of these like books about um where you've just completely pushing leftist like gender and race propaganda but Stephen, this reminds me of like the, i don't know if you ever knew um you know, there'd be one kid in your class who was part of a a, 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 a sort of a, a, a 
staunch church and then you'd go oh yeah come come along and then you'd go along and then there'd be a skate park and all this cool stuff and they then eventually the hammer would come down and then they'd say come on in we've got to pray it's so weird <laughs> because it, the whole thing was like surreal right um and and we were obviously there to interview people and we got interviewing and this didn't make it in the film but we because it was just slightly too complicated to explain but we were interviewing this um podcast these guys had like run they run a podcast i forget what it's called i oh, know it's called both sides of the conversation podcast I, I encourage everyone to look up this podcast <laughs> it has about, if you go on youtube it has every the average amount of views the videos get about 50 literally like under 100 um you know some of them have like one or two views really well produced the whole the stand that they had was selling lots of merchandise you know t-shirts all sort of things that they were giving out they they were desperate to give it to us for free and i kept saying no 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 i don't want it you know it's fine i i feel bad i can't pay for it and they said um no 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 you must have it you must have it and they gave us these t-shirts um and uh we spoke to the guy who was running the podcast the podcast host a very sort of charismatic chap and he was saying all these odd things about how um, without black people, women's rights wouldn't exist. And without black people, Asian people in America wouldn't exist. And it was quite an odd, it was an odd interview. Um, and he was very much supportive of the, of the reparations. And afterwards, we Googled this podcast. We were like, what is this thing? It's really weird. And it turned out that this podcast is part of something called the Dream Keepers Initiative. Dream Keepers Initiative is a San Francisco government um, initiative where they took, I forget the exact figure, I think it was either $120 million or $200 million. Maybe it was $120 million, I think, from the San Francisco police. And they invested it into, they literally took it from the law enforcement budget and they invested it into black community projects, of which this podcast was one of them. <laughs> imagine getting a podcast. Imagine getting a podcast and, yes. it, and if, if our podcast took cops off the street. Imagine that. Yes. Oh wow! To a podcast that no one listens to and no one watches, like it was just so, that is one example. But it was like you know, and so you had all the city government people there pushing all the massages. You had all of the stuff who di who didn't want to speak on camera, um, and yeah, and then I just did loads of vox pops, which you could watch in the in the film with um, with some people asking about the reparations issue. And again, just the the answers were just so weird. There's this one woman who I didn't realize when I was speaking to her at the time, and you can see from the back she's got a Black Lives Matter logo on her jumper. And uh, I, obviously, I couldn't see the back of her, so I didn't realise that I was choosing someone who was a real sort of radical activist to speak to. And as soon as I started asking her questions, she turned extremely like passive aggressive and turned the questions around on me. So I was asking her, you know, do you support reparations? And she said, well, that doesn't matter. What what matters is whether you support reparations. And I said, well, I'm a journalist. I'm from the UK. You know, it's not really about what I believe. Oh, but are you saying Britain had no role in slavery? I said, no, of course, we had a role in slavery. Um, and I said, but to be fair, you know, we did end the slave trade. And she said, oh, yeah, you ended it in 18.07. I said, 18.07, yeah, 18.07, we ended the slave trade. Ah, but by ending the slave trade, you put it underground and you made it into the black market and you actually made it worse, which is historical nonsense. Check I mean, literally, oh. yeah, it's, it's utter, <laughs> utter crap. We actually saved 150,000 people. If you can look in the, it's great, it, really fascinating history of the Royal Navy ending the slave trade around the world. 
150,000 people, the estimate, were, um, were freed because of that, those efforts. And thousands of British people died trying to do that, by the way. And we spent, I think, 40% of the Navy's budget, Royal Navy's budget, was spent on ending the slave trade during, the, during a period of the 19th century. So she's just completely wrong. And, um, and she was extremely aggressive. And, and you can watch, I, you know, that's quite a fun interview to watch because um, she's quite sort of feisty. And some of the other people, and they were just saying these utterly, utterly weird things that you just, and, uh, you know, I, I was trying to be fair to them in the edit, and, and but it was really difficult because these people were just saying these things, you know, about um, how, what was this one woman saying? She was saying people could go back to, Chinese people could go back to China in America. I don't know if you remember this bit. Arabic people could go back to Arabia. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I can. But I can't go back to anywhere. And I was thinking, well, well, actually, there is somewhere, isn't there? Isn't African Americans, isn't there? Uh, sort of clues in the title. I'm not saying she should go back to that place, by the way, to Africa. But I mean, uh, it was just a bizarre point that she was making. Um, and other people were making equally bizarre points. And I don't know if you want me to talk about the main kind of guest, the main star of that section. Absolutely. Not, we are desperate yeah. to talk about Nicole Cunningham, uh, <laughs> a member of the Reparations Committee member. Uh, who's investigating how to make the policy work. Firstly, let's just say a great sport for, for talking to you. And you're absolutely right. You Your edit is um, and your generous. incredibly generous. generous. It, there is so much. Um, uh, you could have done The Office and looked at the camera so many times and just done full Tim <laughs> from The Office and just gone, like and just gone. <laughs> yeah. But you did none of that and you just let her say all of the things she said. So please tell us more about Nicole Cunningham. Yeah. Now Nicole is a really interesting woman and you know she's um I choked you know what I have to be completely honest here on the San Francisco Reparations Committee website there are 15 members of the committee and I had to make a decision as to who I was going to reach out to to interview. And they had pictures of every single one. And I asked whether the chairman would do it he said no. I asked the deputy chair person they said no. And I saw this woman with red hair who looked um, like, to be honest, she looked like an activist. And I just thought, she's the one. She's the one I have to speak to. <laughs> so I emailed her and she said yes immediately. And she said, and her, the funny thing was her email, her email signature, was a, there was a big clue in the email signature as to where her position was, I suppose. It said, so you know, an email signature might say, you, you know, your name, your job title, your number, whatever. Yeah. In her one, it says, yeah, so not just the pronouns, it said racist status, status, not racist, how about you? And then a little Black Lives Matter face. <laughs> I'm going to use that. I'm going to say racist status, not racist, how about you? Leave it at that. That's good. It didn't end there. There was the pronouns, obviously, I support LGBTQIA, yeah. 2 plus, blah, blah, blah. Yes. And then it, there was a quote. <laughs> so there was a quote and it said something like, and, you know, sorry, Nicole, if I've got this wrong but it, it said something like um follow your dreams or something really innocuous you know or, or you Good know love, love. When, when it's when when the night is dark you know the sun is lightest or whatever it is you know so, some really just generic thing and um you know who's the quote from is it is it from martin luther king is it from some inspirational is it from rosa parks is it from an inspirational figure no no the quote is from nicole herself so it's just like utterly bizarre <laughs> <laughs> herself. that's brilliant <laughs> So I interviewed her and we, we met at this Juneteenth um, rally and um, she was just a very strange lady. She she was very charismatic, very outgoing. Mm. And she started saying things about 
talking about her son to me off camera, saying how her son, when she when he was two years old, she realized that he um, was part of the LGBT community. And I just thought, well, how did you realize that? Her son is 19 years old now. He's, um, he's, he, he's non-binary, apparently. And I just was thinking, what did I mean? What influence has Nicole had in his life? She was also there. Were other things that didn't make it into the edit that she was talking about, like the word LGBT wasn't around twenty years ago. Well, it's obviously She's it's just it up. It's bollocks, <laughs> yes, even and 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 the two-year-old thing was fascinating. I was just like, wow, you are a you're a whisperer, trans whisperer. Come over to my house and see what's going on here. Then, if you're so good, Do you know what was weird was. She she was telling me, and this didn't make it into the edit, but she was telling me that um, none of her family speak to her anymore. Like she doesn't speak to her sister, she doesn't speak to her mum, she doesn't speak to her dad, um, she doesn't speak to her. I think she has two ex husbands or one. Maybe she's been married twice. I think. Um, so she doesn't speak to a lot of her family and she was blaming them and she was saying, you know, there was a bit where she was talking about her relationship with her dad, where she was saying, you know, and my dad, he would ask, he, I would borrow money for him from him and he would, he would ask for it back. And that was the reason that she didn't speak to her dad or part of the reason was because he was asking for them. It's like, what? Um, she said her mom treated her like, you know, like demanding things of her and, you know, I'm not a kid anymore, mom. What, you know, why are you asking me to do X, Y, Z? And I just thought... You're blaming everyone else in your life for basically for your problems. And this was the thing about Nicole was, you know, everything was someone else's fault. And that's what I was talking about at the beginning of the interview. You know, I really hope people take responsibility for the problems in their life. I've tried to do that as much as I can. Um, but for Nicole, it's, it's, it was everyone else's fault, you know, whether it was in her job where she felt that she'd been discriminated against because of her disability. And she actually admitted again, I think this was in the, in the, in the final cut, that her boss was actually a black person. But the black person was actually being controlled by the white supremacists at the top of the organization. It was the San Francisco city government who she's suing for some money over dis alleged discrimination. And this is the reason, by the way, that she's on the reparations committee. She's not some sort of expert in reparations or history or slavery or anything like that. The reason that she's on the committee is because they wanted someone with what they called a lived experience of discrimination. That was the only reason that she was asked on this committee. So... It's also talking a bit about, you know, all of the therapy that she gets and da 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 and how some astrologist told her X, Y, Z and just like healing therapy and all sorts of odd things that, um, you know, fair enough if she wants to do that. But um, but yeah, I just thought, she, and she was saying some things about white people. I asked her, what's your, basically, what, what do you think of when I, when I say straight white man? And she just listed out a load of negatives about serial killers and just a load of jumbled stuff about how um you know they're all privileged and you know she said to be fair to her she said not all of them she can't generalize you're lucky for all when you ask the question you're lucky she didn't just have a big pause and say british and scary, and scary. <laughs> so weird. Do, you know what? She, do you know what to be fair to nicole she weirdly she was really nice like in terms of her, my interactions of her like she was very polite she was very bubbly she was very um generous she was you know as a person on the into on a human level i enjoyed her company and i had no problems with her it's just that what she was saying was um was surreal to put it to put it well, lightly. There's, there's one point i wanted to ask you about because there's there's one point she makes that's actually quite based she says quote they can figure it out, just like they figure everything else out. The president didn't ask us about money for Ukraine, but they found it. So this woman said things 
you know, the other things that were quite far-fetched. But this point was actually quite compelling. I could, You could find this point being made on Jimmy Dore's channel, Glenn Greenwald. Um, so, I mean, what do you think? Shouldn't the communities in need feel a little annoyed that Ukraine's getting uh, lavish aid packages? I think, I think, and this was a real sentiment at Juneteenth, by the way, lots of people were telling me that. I'd say almost everyone I interviewed were like saying, all this money's going to Ukraine, why aren't we getting anything? And it's understandable because American taxpayers have funded to the tunes of like hundreds of billions of dollars this war, uh, you know, the Ukrainians. I think, um, you know, the debate on Ukraine in the UK is quite different to, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but um, in the US, it's, you know, it's very sort of um, sort of different perspective, I suppose. And we have funded to the tunes of billions as well, but not nowhere near as much as what the Americans have, have given. Um, I think it's a legitimate, I think it's a legitimate point to make. Uh, about where your taxpayer funding um, is going and where, you know, whether that's efficient and whether, you know, there's this whole thing about Trump's kind of America first policy and all that stuff. So I think it's a fair enough point um, about efficiency of taxpayer spending. I mean, the the issue of spending money on Ukraine as a kind of geopolitical point is a sort of another debate, I suppose. Mm. Well, I'm I'm interested to know how they came up with this figure of of $5 million. Did did, did you, did, were you able to work this out? Me, I literally have no idea. (laughs) Uh, it's complete. I think it's completely arbitrary, but and um, you know, I, I mean, the thing is, it's never going to happen. They can't afford it. So it's it's just really that, that's the thing about this whole thing is is actually pernicious because you're basically giving people false hope. I mean, you're telling people that they're going to get a load of money when they're just not. And I hope people are intelligent enough, and I think they are, to know that that figure is outrageous. Um, but even you know, even if it was half that figure, a fifth of that figure, you know, a tenth of that figure, it's never going to happen. So um, I think I think it's a real I think it's a really really dangerous thing to say, and it's a really divisive thing as well because you know you are just judging people based on the color of their skin. You're ba- you're you're saying that because I'm a white man, and this is literally what one one woman was saying to me, the first person I interviewed. You know, are you going to give the money back that you plundered and your your ancestors plundered from the world? Why should I be held responsibility for the actions of people I have literally nothing to do with? I just happen to be white. And and it's like there were lots of black slave traders. There were lots of black people in Africa who stole other people from other tribes and sold them for for guns. There are lots of horrible people all around the world who've done horrible things in the past. You know, the vast majority of human actions have been terrible in the past. You know, um, from in terms of judging it from our standards today. So why should anyone be held accountable for things that that they have nothing to do with? That's the point of it. And I think it's re- I just I find the whole thing really divisive and um I, f- I think it's so depressing that they're even having this debate in america well the the feeling i get from from your documentary and from nicole herself is that for some people this reparations thing seems like a full-time job to to these people like they're working at it so hard to get that five million dollars you know and it's like it's like that guy that spends so much time preparing cheating for the test working out ways to write the answers on their arms when, up and down when, the leg, yeah, up and down the leg, whatever. When when they could just study and and you know pass the test, you know, I feel like these people should just get back to fucking work, you know, like like work on yourself, you know, work on your job, your family, whatever. Get that get that in order and just just leave. And maybe but, 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 but alone, it's you know? offensive to community organizers as well because because that's a good point, like the sort of the bootstraps thing, which I think most of us are sympathetic to. But then there's the, you know, maybe there are. A couple of initiatives we could do targeted things where we could put a little bit of cash into, you know, 
helping a community in a, in a tangible way that's going to work rather than just give everyone five $5 million, you know? They have been doing this, you know, you don't forget that they have spent billions, if not trillions of dollars on trying to help the black community in America. And a lot of these, this money is wasted, you know, and, and some of it goes on sort of corruption and things in the past. Um, there have been huge social security programs in America, huge amounts of investments in schooling and all of these things. Don't forget that. Don't don't um, don't sort of just say that that hadn't that hasn't happened because it has. I think that uh, and look, I'm not an expert on the issues facing the black community, but again, I think that there's some really important points to be made. And this is back for everyone, you know, everyone who's who's going for a, a troubled time is you need to take responsibility in your life. And I think that's the thing that a lot of these campaigners like Nicole just don't do. And I think you just go out and blame everyone else. That's not going to solve your problem. The problem is going to be solved when you start to take it to take it seriously from a pers- from a perspective where you're taking responsibility in your own life and to say, actually, I do have responsibility over my own actions over my own choices and yes while some things aren't out of my some things are out of my control i have to do everything i can to try and improve my own lot before i go on blaming everyone else for my problems well you you asked another lady in san francisco uh if if san francisco was a racist city and she said a firm yes three times and then when you, you you sort of pressed her on the personal instances of of racism she had she had experienced she she admitted that she hadn't experienced any directly but she alleged that she'd experienced racism systemically uh, which you know was was fascinating to hear uh, you know what what do you make of that i think I just think this term systemic racism, it's like a bogeyman. It's this, it's this thing that no one can really define. And when you start asking them follow-ups about, you know, what exactly was the systemic racism you experienced, it's, all, it's always just really vague things like, oh, well, well house prices are high. So I've, they've experienced like, um, I think they call it redlining and, and zoning and um, all of these laws that they claim have been racist and da-da-da-da-da. Um, <clears throat> for me, it's just, it's just an all-encompassing kind of, uh, I don't know. It's almost like a straw man. It's like, it, to me, it, it's very difficult to define. And um, I, it's just another one of these phrases that's just like almost it's so vague, it's almost meaningless. So you spoke to someone else uh, on the other side of the coin, Dr. Carol Swain, uh, uh, an academic and very inspiring woman, actually. I've, I've tried to get her on this show uh, a couple of times. Uh, she had this to say. Uh, well, actually, this is an excerpt from one of your pieces, so you're in here too. Quote, I have no confidence that any type of reparations paid out would make a difference in the lives of average people and it would uh, probably make them worse off, uh, close quote. Dr. Swain argues black Americans should take responsibility for the issues facing them, saying, quote, part of the problem is moral, it's spiritual, there's no government fix and there's no amount of money in the world that can change the conditions that many black people live under, close quote. A final quote here, uh, they themselves have to get tired of the crime. Uh, I feel like there are a lot of people who would agree with what uh, Dr. Swain has to, has to say here, but her message, and this is a testament to The Telegraph and your work, her message would never appear, just to, you know, a couple, would never appear in The Guardian, would never appear in The New York Times, and would never appear, uh, you know, I don't think it would appear on the BBC. You can correct me on any of those if you think, but, uh, you know, we've got this 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 very um, inspiring uh inspiring message but uh just those in- institutions i mentioned uh will never print it what, what what are we to do Stephen? 
Well, I think we can try and interview those people. And I'm glad that you're trying to uh, reach out to Carol Swain and get an interview with her. She's brilliant. Um, yeah, no, her message wouldn't appear on the BBC or The Guardian or any of these places. And, and by the way, just so people can understand exactly what my job here is at The Telegraph, I'm actually not, or part of my job is to be a reporter. For, but for this film, it was, uh, it was actually an opinion film. So I work on the opinion or comment desk. So we have a bit more flexibility in terms of how we can, um, in terms of the content that I'm producing. So people have to remember that the stuff that I'm making, yes, I have to have ethical um, uh, considerations. Obviously, I think about everything in terms of whether this is true or not. I have to fact check it, etc. But everything I do uh, is from a kind of opinionated perspective, I suppose. Um, but yes, I think it's really interesting that you talk about uh, Carol Swain's background as well obviously she's a black lady she's an african-american she was on trump's kind of 1776 commission project which was about trying to defend american history as he saw it as tradition you know against the 1619 project idea um <clears throat> not when you get minorities who kind of buck the trend of being a democrat or being on the left there's they tend to get a big backlash and they're sort of being accused of being a race traitor and an uncle tom and all of these things and, you know, the, actually this week, the doc, I, we did a few documentaries as well, so I was out in America. And one of the ones I was I did was about Canada. And we talked, and I know one of your previous guests was talking about euthanasia, right, in Canada. And that's a big, mm. that's actually part of our do, do, upcoming documentary. We interview some really interesting Canadians about euthanasia. We interviewed this one woman who was uh, uh, worked in an abortion clinic for 30 years. And then she decided it was part of her social justice campaign to suddenly become an administrator for euthanasia so she actually goes out and and helps people commit suicide and then we also spoke to another woman against it just utterly really interesting stuff but one of the people we interviewed for that film or two people were they were came from an indian background like indian canadians um not not native americans or uh, red indians but actually from india and they were talking about the fact that trudeau and the left in canada they don't want to hear their views on let's say LGBT um, ideology or whatever, because they don't fit in with that like multicultural minority mold. There's a very specific view <clears throat> that if you come from that background, you have to hold that you're seen as you know if you're black, if you're Asian, if you're a minority, you you basically have to ha you have to agree with the left. You have to agree that you're a victim. You have to agree X Y Z or about all of the sort of generic left wing woke kind of views. And when you disagree with that you are really ostracized and you've seen like there are some conservative figures in America, particularly in America, who have experienced some terrible abuse because of that, because they basically bucked that trend and, and were thinking in a more conservative or even like independent way. Well, we're hearing similar calls for Indigenous Australians to receive reparations uh, and, and some have proposed payment in the form of yearly taxes or, or rent as it's commonly referred to. Now, given that the US was able to export BLM across the globe, including to the UK, and, you know, it, it was weird to hear, you know, protest slogans like don't shoot yelled across London, you know, when, when the cops don't even have guns. But do you think reparations will glo go global? You know, will there be calls for reparations paid to black communities in Europe or in the UK, do you think? Do you know what? It's a really interesting question. And I think that you talk about 
um, Australia and its indigenous people. In Canada, again, just linking back to this Canadian documentary, part of the film we were making was about their tale of indigenous genocide, as they call it. And they have this whole narrative that there was a genocide in Canada against the indigenous peoples. And that this is all based off the fact that there's a residential school in a place called Kamloops, which we went to, where they found these 215 sort of disturbances in the ground using ground penetrating radar. And they claim that this was like a mass grave site there's never ever been any evidence of bodies found there and lots of people refute this this story and i think that it's interesting you talk about the impact of american cultural i suppose wokeism being exported to places like canada to places like you mentioned germany as one being one there is a theory and i think and um, i really would be interested to hear what you guys think about this that countries that lack an identity or a national sort of a strong national identity tend to take up these socially liberal viewpoints as being their nation's new identity. And I think Canada is the perfect example of this, where you've basically had attacks for decades and decades and decades on their links with Britain, on their links as a Commonwealth country to the British Empire, to the Queen, to the monarchy. And they've tried to reinvent themselves as a nation that is multicultural, that is woke, that is inclusive, that is, in, that is accepting. And they've taken these American concepts, which one could even argue were originally French concepts, um, although the Americans definitely enhanced them. And they've taken these American concepts and they've um, put it onto the extreme. And Canada in particular is a good example of this because Canada likes to compare itself to America. Canadians like to feel a sense of moral superiority over their American cousins. So everything that they do has to be more accepting, more polite, more uh, woke, if you, you know, for want of a better word. Britain, you've seen a lot of pushback against various woke things. I'm not saying we're perfect. We've got huge, huge issues. And I don't know if we, you want to talk about UK politics as well. But um, we've, we've certainly got our own problems. And I'm extremely depressed about what's going on in the UK. But there has been a certain level of pushback. You know, conservatives here have, have been some, in some cases, quite bold in pushing back on some of these things. In Australia, I know Australia has quite a strong national identity, especially compared to Canada. But again, it's this, it's this kind of Commonwealth country. New Zealand is probably a better example of this, where a nation that lacks a cultural and national identity, a strong culture, it's a lot easier to take over that country, that country's national identity as being sort of along woke lines. And in America, just to finish off this point, America has had a really strong tradition of conservatism, uh, you know, going back all the way to the founding fathers. Obviously, there's been huge debates between the Jeffersonian kind of line of the more kind of French philosophy and then the more Hamilton side of things where you've got um, the more kind of English common law traditional um, sort of precedent, I suppose, background. But you've got that strong tradition of conservatism. In the UK, again, conservatism was basically invented. Uh, that's very, very sort of generalising there. I don't know what it's like on Australia, but I just think it's interesting that, that it seems to me the less of a national identity your country has, Germany's a great example of this as well, because they've really tried to distance, and, distance themselves from um, their past for obvious reasons. And they, they, they're trying to destroy the concept of what it is to be a German because that is something to be ashamed of. So now they've got this very sort of globalistic out, uh, view of what German is. They're more European. They don't want to talk about that, that being proud of, be, of being German, for example. So this is, a, you know, 
you've got the Commonwealth, again, who lack identity because there's one step away from Britain. And then Germany is another great example of this, where basically they hate themselves because of what happened in the Second World War. So I don't know, what do you guys think about that? What are you, what's going on in Australia? Well, I, I think in Australia, there is a bit of a crisis of identity, I think, in our country. I mean, we used to be a nation of larrikins and, and you know, Aussie battlers. We used to give people a fair go. And I think what I think the pandemic really highlighted to me that that we sort of lost a lot of that and we just sort of went along with whatever we were told to do, you know. And I, we, we are definitely importing some of these ideas from from the US and maybe from the UK as well. But I, yeah, I just I, I definitely think that Australia is lacking sort of a national identity. I mean, John, what do you think? Canada's winning. If there's a if, like if there's if there's a race here, Canada's definitely winning. Uh, and power to them. I hope they take all the medals um, and leave none for us. Uh, and then the I feel like I'd be interested to see, see Stephen what the situation is in the UK because obviously we're all terminally online by the sounds of it. So. You know, I look at the stuff out of the UK and there's a few cases where I go, even that's a bit mad for us. Like, I think we're nat- we're behind, we're woke, but we're, but we're behind naturally because we're always behind. We're behind on everything. We're behind on, you know, fashion, trends, everything. So that's just natural. So we can't, there's no way we could be just somehow, I'd be kind of proud on some sick level if we were winning the woke stakes. I'd be like, oh, wow, we're good. At, we're finally leading some, some charge, you know? <laughs> But what about New Zealand? That's that's right back next oh to you. Oh my and I god, think... Stephen! How could I forget New Zealand? Oh my god! <laughs> they are the dark horse. They're the smoky. They've come up the back, and and Canada are winning. But but on the inside track is nipping at their heels are uh, the yes. race race obsessed um, uh, New Zealand. We the stuff we interviewed um, Jonathan Ailing from the Free Speech Union. Oh, absolutely fascinating! What's going on there? Hearing about. Um, uh, like they've got all because they I think they've they've um, brought in they brought in well they're going to bring all these hate speech laws in that they, they, yeah. they now have got all these arguments about whether Maori ways of knowing are are on an equal footing with 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 science and teaching yes. they've changed the name of the country it's it's got now called Aotearoa you know like it's not even New Zealand like they, I, I bet you I didn't even that, know I that happened like Maori Maori science as like actual science and stuff like yes. that I mean. But- so I mean that. So I'm glad you brought them up, and I'm embarrassed uh, that I forgot them. But I also think that the you know the wokeness seems to live in English as well, because um, there are so many uh, cultures out there. Like if you're a language learner, if you know another language, um, it's very hard to translate these concepts. Like you know, I try in Japanese all the time. It's almost impossible to explain what concepts in Japanese to um, you know, and and, and therefore. And I'm not saying that that's just one country out of many, but but for example, and I know that, and they've got some stuff that even from the outside, I'm like, oh well, you could probably, you know, women maybe shouldn't be forced to wear high heels to work. Maybe that's not great. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, although, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, we can all argue about that another time. But the point is, um, you, you know, even but but separate from that, it's very difficult. But I've known, and, and it's very interesting you brought up G- G- Germany because I hadn't considered that because they, you know. They're not necessarily all about English, uh, but I feel like this this virus lives. It's transmitted through English. Uh, the nonsense. Yeah, I think I think it kind of, as you say, it. English is probably where it's happening at the forefront, and probably I just don't know because I'm I'm, I'm an ignorant Englishman and I don't know other languages. But I'm guessing my guess would be that um, that they that they would catch up. I mean, all the sort of all the innovation, I suppose 
to put it in a sick way, on the woke uh, side of things, um, happens in particularly in like American universities, American um, institutions. Uh, I think America definitely is sort of where they're really where you've got the most kind of radical people. And then when, if you're talking about government institutions, definitely Canada, definitely New Zealand. The whole point of this film that we're making about Canada is that Canada is an outlier. And you know, we spoke to actually, you know. We, Jordan Peterson was one of the people we spoke to him when, when I was out there. And um, there's a whole, like, I think we put an hour and a half of his interview on YouTube already that people can listen to. There's a whole nother, like, section that we're going to put out about Canada that hasn't gone out yet. That's, well, because Canada really... is essentially the Milan of wokeness. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, if there's a, if there's a cool epicenter of wokeness, it's Canada. You know, you know and we ask just... every Canadian Canada. we have on... But we ask every Canadian we have on, and we say, "What? Why? Why is this?" They, 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 none of them have good answers for me. I think there are a few answers. Okay, and and, and uh, the reason I ask: Have, have you been? Have, have you been to Canada? No, no. Okay, so this is my first time there. Canada has this reputation as being like an extremely polite country. Okay, and that, that that's part of their very very weak national identity. They are not polite. They are some of the rudest people I've met in my life. Um, <laughs> that's me probably like overgeneralizing, and I'm sure there are lots of lovely Canadians, and apps, and we did meet a few really nice ones, obviously. But um, our overall experience, and, and you'll see it in the documentary, is just some really aggressive people, and um, really passive aggressive people. Mm. And I think there's there's this idea that you know. And Jordan Peterson talks about this in my interview with him. I was literally just editing it where he was talking about the Canadian psyche. And the idea that you can be uh, accepting and conscientious and open to the po- has, you know, it's, it's a good thing on the, on the sort of surface because you're being nice and you're being polite and everything else. But when psychopaths exploit that weakness, and it is a weakness in a way, um, you are susceptible to vast changes and basically peterson argues that canada has been this huge almost social experiment where these psychopathic what he calls dark triad types of which the sort of epicenter if you like is justin trudeau have taken over the country and they have very very weak responses to this and particularly again as i said before canada has not had a strong tradition of conservatism which traditionally would you know, put a hold to this woke revolution, would put a hold to the far excessive liberalism. But the problem they've had is the Conservatives have been so weak at holding that stuff back. It's been like a sort of, um, it's like a, a rotten door. It was very easy to kick in in Canada. So the woke people have been very successful in Canada because the defences against this stuff have been um, have been very weak and the foundations have been very weak to prevent this stuff from happening. And I think it's basically been a perfect kind of cauldron of things, you know, this idea that they have to compare themselves to America, they have to go further than the Americans, they have to be seen as being, you know, the woke proper country. As, you know, like one great example of this is like gun laws and and their um, healthcare system. So they love to compare themselves to the Ameri- these mad American right-wing Texas Republicans and look at the sensible Canadians. But when you take that to its logical conclusion, you also start doing things like passing laws to um, criminalize language and speech because you have to be inclusive and you can't have hate speech. Uh, you know, we spoke to people, a woman who'd been 
uh, who's facing losing her nursing license because she put up a poster saying, I heart JK Rowling. We spoke to a teacher who was fired within 30 minutes of saying that this so-called indigenous genocide um, didn't happen and that they actually died of tuberculosis. Literally within 30 minutes, he was frog marched out of the school and he's never, and he hasn't taught since. That was two years ago. We spoke to various people who have faced lose. I mean, like the Indian guy I mentioned earlier, he lost his job because he refused to take the vaccine. So in so many ways, Canada has turned into a left-wing authoritarian country on the guise of compassion. And people like Trudeau have been at the forefront of pushing this, like, terrible ideology and there has been very very few canadians who've been fighting back some of them have and actually this is the takeaway that i took from the canadian documentary some canadians are the most inspiring incredible people i've ever met in my life because the shit that they've gone through and um the backlash that they've had was so intense where you know you, you you could be talking about your whole family, friends, all of you, all of them ostracizing you, uh, the, the entire government apparatus against you, and yet they have fought against it. So there are some really inspirational stories from Canada, and what we can learn from Canada isn't just the bad stuff. It isn't just that they are a warning to us in terms of this is where the logical conclusion of wokeism is, is Canada. Actually, we can also learn from some of the incredibly brave and courageous individuals within Canada, of which I think Jordan Peterson is one, who have fought against this stuff, spent their entire lives fighting against this stuff. And there's, uh, you know, if, if you want, I can talk about one person's story, which is the most inspiring story, but um, really, really, really amazing Please. Please things in Canada. Okay, so part of the... Part of the um, film was about euthanasia as i mentioned earlier so we spoke to the clinician who was the abortionist for 30 years who then became an assisted dying practitioner she believed she agreed with the fact that canada's new laws on euthanasia next year as i'm sure you've already talked about this in your podcast mm. um they're going to enable mental health to be a reason to um to commit suicide and we spoke, we wanted to speak to someone obviously on the other side of things. So we spoke to a woman called Christine. She's a Francophone Canadian. She lives just outside of Montreal. And she was a veteran. So she worked, she was in the Canadian Army during the first Gulf War. She fell into a trench in the wrong way and she paralyzed her legs. She took from that, again, talking about taking responsibility, you know, such a terrible thing that can happen to you. She, she didn't sulk, she didn't moan, whatever. She became a, a Paralympian. She worked, so she served her country, fighting for her country, and then she decided, right, I'm going to serve my country in another way, and I'm going to become a kayaker. And she won five um, like world medals for Canada. Then she got hit by a car. She got paralyzed even more. And then she went to the Paralympics, and she, unfortunately, I, I think she... I can't remember where she got bronze or something, but maybe she came fourth. But but um, she she did you know she she, re, she if she hadn't been hit by this other car, I think she would have done a lot better. Um, and since then, the, the 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 sort of paralyzing nature of her illness, I suppose, has become so bad that she just can't kayak anymore, and it's just really really you know sad kind of story. So for twenty eight years, she's been um, she's been paralyzed. She's been going through absolute hell, and the Canadian government have treated her in a, just a terrible way. It took her, to get a new wheelchair, it took her 12 years. 12 years to get a new wheelchair that was broken or wasn't properly, or wasn't suiting her needs. They've recently, they're cutting back her um, 
disability allowance from like $7,000 to like $2,000, something like that, which is just devastating for her because all the, you know, cost of living, everything with inflation is just already causing a huge problem. And how is she meant to live? How is she meant to live? She's saying, how is she meant to live with dignity, right? Another huge issue for Christine is the fact that she has to struggle to get downstairs in her house. And, you know, I've seen her do it. We've got it on camera. I mean, she literally did it for us. I didn't, I said you didn't have to do this, but she wanted to do it. She has to get on this like disabled ramps uh, chair thing. And it's just a whole rigmarole thing. It's really painful. It's causing her medical problems. It's a like, it's a really not a good situation to be in that she has to rely on this piece of equipment. So she's been begging the Canadian government, I need a better piece of equipment than this, you know. And she's been begging for years, for years and years and years. And they're, and they're saying, no, it's too expensive. So she was on the phone one day to, a, to someone from Veterans Affairs Canada, who, which is the Canadian like government authority to do with veterans. And she said, asking again, asking, can I have this? I need this disabled ramp because it's about my quality of life and being able to live with dignity. And the person on the phone replied, have you considered the MAID process? In other words, have you considered committing suicide? Now, God. she told me that this is this was one of the most like insulting, like disgusting things anyone could ever say, particularly a, a government official actually telling her that because they privatized this Veterans Affairs Canada and she felt that basically she was just a number on a spreadsheet and it was far cheaper for them to for her to die than to offer up this disabled ramp. So she was talking about the fact she was a she's a Catholic, she's a Christian. Um, she, you know, she felt and she's felt for years that in Canada they've really attacked Christianity, particularly Catholicism. And when you have a nation which has become essentially a post-Christian nation, where you view morality in new terms that are completely separate from that Christian, I suppose, ethos and way of life this if you like to term it this new woke morality it is now that is that is now acceptable to ask disabled veterans who have served their country in so many ways if they would rather commit suicide than give them a disabled ramp so and to me she i mean she was so inspirational she was saying you know if it wasn't for her dog <clears throat> sorry she had like a little um you know she wasn't little at all. It was a huge dog, but sort of disabled dog that helped her um, bring her wheelchair and, um, you know, things like that. And she said, if it wasn't for the dog, she she would have committed suicide. You know, like she she said she's wanted to commit suicide so many times, but she's always had this kind of will to live and this sort of real kind of fire in her. Um, and I could really see that and you could really tell. And she showed us all her medals and all her photos from, you know, um, from being a kayaker and everything. And that is Canada, you know, that story is Canada. That is what, and that is unfortunately, I think, you know, what could be coming to Australia, what could be coming to Britain, what could be coming to other countries. Well, it, it, it sounds like we're going to have to uh, have to have you back on to, to talk about Canada when that, when that documentary drops. But I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated to know what, what, what it was like interviewing JP, Jordan Peterson. So I've interviewed him once before. And um, for me, Jordan Peterson, uh, I really, you know, admire him. Um, I read his book when I was a teenager, and it and it had an impact on my life and how, and how I viewed kind of my own situation. And did you um, clean you your know, room? I cleaned my room. I'm, and you know, I I really did uh, do the whole making the bed thing, and I never did that before I read his book. And now I do it every day. I like I literally cannot leave my room without making the bed. Um, and uh, so I liked him a lot. And I had always and do you know, there's been something in me since I was a teenager, since I was reading his stuff, watching his stuff on YouTube, 
um, that said, I, it was almost like something in my head that said, you will, you, it's a weird thing. And I know this sounds bizarre, but I always just thought you will definitely, you, one day you will interview Jordan Peterson. And I just always knew that it was going to happen. And I had this YouTube channel and I always wanted it, wanted it to happen. It took me so long to, to secure the first interview. I think it took me two years. Um, and that was, a, that was through a very long process of speak, first speaking with his daughter, interviewed her, and then going through a whole load of negotiations. That was for another newspaper I worked for. And that ha was to happen in the pandemic, and it was over Zoom, and, you know, it was brilliant. And it, it was the most watched video I've ever done. It got like 4 million hits. Um, and I was, I was quite happy with it. I wish, I think, I slightly regret my performance in that interview, but, but I, it was fine. Um, and it was over Zoom. And again, I want to, obviously I wanted to meet him in person as well. So, um, so two years later, again, after two years of sort of speaking with his people, um, they agreed to do it. I was so, so, so lucky that I was in Canada, in Toronto, at the same time that he was, he said he'd been traveling. So I was, I was there in July, he'd been traveling around the world since like last November. And that week was the first week that he was actually in his place outside of Toronto. So I was really lucky to get the interview and um, he was a very humble man. He was very, um, you know, accommodating and everything else. The interview itself I found fascinating. I think, you know, we were talking about the topic of the interview was dissidents. I was fascinated in this idea of Soviet dissidents, Alexander Solzhenitsyn being one of them, um, Nazi dissidents, Hans and Sophie Scholl, fascinating story people don't know about these teenagers who rebelled against the Nazis and were killed for it. Just amazing, again, hugely inspirational story. And I wanted to ask Jordan, like, you know, what does he think makes a dissident a dissident? What, what gives the motivation? What enables some people <clears throat> to fight? And this was, again, this is the whole theme of what I was doing in Canada. I was interviewing these really inspirational people who were, who I would say they are dissidents. They're happy to fight the good fight against all of these terrible forces. And what to me I found really interesting was why do people do that? What motivates people to do that? Why are some people um, courageous in that way and others aren't? It's like that old question, you know, would you be in the French resistance in the Second World War? You know, a lot of people would like to think that they would be, but the chances are you wouldn't be because, you know, almost everyone wasn't until the very end of the war when it was obvious the Allies were going to win. So I really wanted to get to the heart of this moral, philosophical and almost spiritual question of what makes some people rebellious and um and what makes others i suppose compliant or or take the easy choice and basically what he said was it's up to you as an individual to make that choice there's nothing there's nothing stopping you or preventing you from being courageous it's everyone's it, it is it's everyone's responsibility to make moral choices in their life and anyone can be a distant anyone can make these decisions it's just it doesn't take anything special. It's just that some he didn't he doesn't know why some people do and some people don't. But his his point was that you don't have to be a special person to do it. Anyone can do it. Anyone can do it. Anyone should do it. And he talked about um, you know Solzhenitsyn and and his case. And for people who don't know, he he wrote that he was a Soviet um, Soviet guy who was in the Gulag for a long time, and he had just a terrible terrible time of it after um, the Second World War. And he wrote these famous works criticizing the Soviet regime. And, he, you know, he was, people credit him as being part of the reason that regime was kind of exposed for, for what it really was. And he wrote this amazing book called The Gulag Archipelago, which is a very difficult book to read. It's something, something that Peterson loves to promote. And, you know, it's um, full of sort of graphic detail of how he was tortured and his fingernails are pulled out and all sorts of things by the Russians, by the Soviets. And Jordan was talking about how did he 
um, view his situation. And again, it goes back to that thing I've been saying throughout this interview about responsibility. He didn't blame Hitler and Stalin for the people people who put him in that camp. He blamed himself. He took he took responsibility for where he was. And I just thought, and it it really put into perspective all of the issues in my life and in everyone's life. You know, sometimes you think you have a bad day, or you know something happens to you, or whatever. And um, there's a tendency, or sort of, a, I suppose, a temptation to want to blame everyone else and to blame others, but having that um i suppose that that sort of ability to be humble and to look in on yourself and to decide that actually you took responsibility for the actions that happened in your life and yes as i said not everything is within your control but for the things that you can control you should try and make it better to have that kind of attitude in the face of utter utter destruction in your life in the case of alexander solzhenitsyn it puts all of your problems into perspective, or at least it did for me. And it made me think, God, why are you worrying about X, Y, Z? Um, you know, there are so many people who have gone through so many, so much worse than you have. Um, stop, you know, stop with the self-pity and start um, taking responsibility. And, you know, someone like Christine is a great example of that. You know, imagine having to live 28 years in your life being paralyzed. Uh, I just don't know how I'd be able to, to do that. And I said to her, I just don't, I literally cannot even fathom what you've been through um and she said no no one can only i can um so so that's kind of the takeaway from that interview it's an hour and a half long so there's lots of other topics that we talk about as well which were quite fun and as i said there's still another about 25 minutes that we have yet to release so people can be excited we're going to put that out as well about particularly about canada um so that was what it was like i don't know if that answered your question that that did and look uh i want to give you the final word Stephen, because we, we you've been so generous with your time uh i i, I i'm well, I, just as an aside, I love that you interviewed JP um, tanned and he's like wearing white as well, which I every time I see him, a new look, you know, and this look, I was like, <laughs> this is great. He, This is indelible. Um, but I'd like to ask you, uh, because we don't get to ask many people this uh, because, you know, not everyone's a podcaster and, and, and you are uh, an interviewer and a, and a, and a caster. Uh, and so you've already sort of half answered it because you've told this wonderful, wonderful story, which we could almost end there. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to press you and get you to give me a, a, a lesson or an idea or something uh, pivotal that's come out of these these incredible people you've spoken to. Now, this is an opportunity just for me to quickly name check some because it's only fair for me to give you some of the things I've learned, right? Just just a couple. Jessica Crispin, uh, one of our guests, uh, blew my mind by saying, you know, we talk about um, monstrous art, monstrous artists, and she said, why are people surprised? She goes, art used to be the place where people who aren't good at life uh, go to. And that, that really, you know, and we've lost touch with that, that, that idea. That blew my mind. Um, Norman Finkelstein, one of the many things he's taught me, uh, he gave me permission to uh, critique Obama and to say he's no good. Uh, <laughs> so thank you, Norman. <laughs> and uh, finally, Spencer Claven, this is just three out of, out of many, uh, talked about the cultivating the furniture of the mind, which I'm told is a biblical concept, but still the idea is sound, the idea that, you know, don't ingest garbage, spend time on, on works that are fill your mind full of, 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 of poetry and great things so that in your quiet moments you can relish this thing. So all of those, that's just three out of many. So have you got something that you can you can share with us about that's that's rocked you yeah i mean it's funny you asked this question before and and 
I had to do a lot of thinking because as an interviewer, I, t- I tend to, I've done so many of these interviews. Sometimes they sort of all mag- amalgamate into one and you just sort of forget exactly some of the details. But um, I'll, t- I'll give you two examples. My interviews are, are sort of are like yours, I suspect, are sort of very versatile, you know, lots of different topics. And um, I remember one guy I interviewed was a guy called Paul Morland, who's a demographer. And I read his book after the interview and I thought it's just absolutely fascinating topic, demography, and how um, fertility, fertility rates around the world are, are dropping in, uh, you know, massively. And he was talking about the fact that India and China are both going to have a demographic cliff, particularly China, you know, by the end of this century, the Chinese population may have halved, might be 750 million. India is also going to have its own um, cliff at one point. And the thing that really stuck with me he was talking about the fact that there is no reason why certain nationalities and peoples should exist. In other words, and he gives two examples of this, Japan and Canada, I'm sure you know more about Japan, oh, Japan, sorry, Japan and Italy. Japan and Italy, both are facing a demographic disaster. Their Japan lost 800,000 people last year. Yeah. So, 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 so he basically was saying there is no reason why in the future Japanese people will exist. There is no reason why Italian people will exist. The place will still be there, the geographic place. But those countries are facing such a cliff in terms of their fertility rates. Um, there is no guarantee that, that we will have a recognisable people in the future called Japanese people and called Italian people. So I thought that was interesting. The other guy I thought was fascinating, and again, I, uh, I read his book before the interview, this guy called Yoram Hazoni. So he's an Israeli philosopher. He writes about um, conservative philosophy. And he wrote a book called Conservative Rediscovery. And his book, it basically is a critique of liberalism. I don't know what your guys' sort of political philosophies are. But um, for me, as someone interested in these things, um, it was very persuasive in terms of the, the, the sort of failures of liberalism in the modern age and how conservatives failed to adapt post-Second World War to this new liberal age, and particularly the impact of that war, you cannot underestimate the impact of the Second World War on how political philosophies developed in the West. What I mean by that that is nationalism, conservatism as a force, was morally tainted by Nazism, you could argue to an extent justifiably. It's understandable if you think Nazis were nationalists, Nazis were conservative, Nazis were from the right, and the, the, the end point of that is the death camps and is the Holocaust. So the absolute revulsion to nationalism, to conservatism, to all of these like conservative right-wing ideas, Yoram Hazoni views that as part of the reason why wokeism is such a significant problem, why Christianity and um, what he calls Judeo-Christian values have been under attack in this last um, 70 or 80 years. And the conclusion of his book, and I'm someone, if I'm being completely honest, I'm not religious, but he, uh, but I thought a lot about, you know, I respect religion, I respect Christianity, I respect Judaism in, in a big way. And the conclusion of his book is that if you want to be a conservative, you can't just live it in practice, you have to live it in theory. No, you have to, sorry, you can't just live it in theory, you have to live it in practice. So, um, To be a conservative and to win the so-called culture war, you should be Christian, in his view, or you should be Jewish. You should live in a family unit. You should respect your elders. You should live in a conservative lifestyle. 
And he talks about in his book about growing up in sort of liberal, um, I think he went to Princeton University in America, and how he um, how he dealt with that and how he came from that liberal perspective, both his parents, I think, were liberals, um, and how he then became a very sort of Jewish, uh, conservative, kind of orthodox guy. So that really stuck with me. It's this idea of, you know, I talk about conservatism a lot in these podcasts, and I like to talk the talk, but am I walking the walk is the question. Well, we won't press you on that this time, but uh, uh, perhaps next time, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Stephen, you've been so generous uh, with your time. Uh, you know, we've taken up more time than, than we should have, but uh, how can people follow your work? Are you on social media? I am on Twitter. They can follow me on Twitter. And they can look at all my YouTube stuff on uh, the Telegraph YouTube channel if they want to see these upcoming documentaries and things like that. Absolutely fantastic. Thanks so much, uh, uh, Stephen, for uh, you know talking to us. And we hope to catch up with you again soon. Cool. Enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the New Flesh podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live the New Flesh.